Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecellosherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. We're so pleased to have Rainer Eudikis as our guest today on our fourth episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. At 29 years old, Rainer was appointed as principal cellist of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, which makes him essentially my boss. Previously, he already had five years of experience under his belt as principal cellist of the Utah Symphony, where he had to make a tough decision after winning a section job in the Pittsburgh Symphony mere weeks before. So as you can already tell, this guy knows how to win auditions. Born in Texas and later moving to Colorado for high school, he attended the University of Michigan, Indiana University, and rounded out his degrees at the Curtis Institute of Music with an artist diploma, where in less than one year, he was staring at the prospect of not one, but two orchestra positions. For many of us, winning one orchestra job before we turned 30 ended up being a Herculean feat. But Rainer, you've won three big jobs before the age of 30. What is your secret to such early success? That's a tough question to answer in some ways. I mean, I think I've been fortunate to have many of my biggest role models in my musical life be prominent principal cellists. So I've had exposure to sort of what it means and what it takes to do that job. So maybe my atmosphere was finely tuned towards ending up doing this. Um, but I've also known for a long time that that this is specifically what I wanted to do, not just to play in an orchestra, but to be a principal cellist of a major orchestra. That That was my goal. So I've been really focused for a number of years on reaching this point. And that's all of my my studying, my practicing, the teachers I chose to work with, that's all been sort of tailored to that goal. So who were those influences? I've had many <laughs> teachers in my life. When I was a young kid, I mean, I feel like I, I switched teachers every couple of years. I'd have to count them to figure out how many I've had. But my final teacher in high school was Jurgen Delemos, who was the principal cellist of the Colorado Symphony for many years. And before that, when he was very young, a member of the New York Philharmonic under Leonard Bernstein. And he actually, the first time I met him was before I was his student and the youth orchestra in Denver, one of them would do a side-by-side -side concert with the Colorado Symphony. And I was sitting next to him and it was basically, you know, like a, a regular or close to it, a professional orchestra rehearsal. And I was just sort of sitting next to him and sort of soaking in how he did his job. And he has a very strong and particular leadership style. And he doesn't mince words. And he's just very direct and obviously knew what he was doing. And that made a really strong impression on me. And within a couple of years, I ended up contacting him to study with him. And then after that, I went and while I was at Michigan, I was studying with Richard Aaron, uh, which I'm sure we can talk about what came along with that later. While I was at Michigan, for the first two summers, I went to the Aspen Music Festival. And while I was there, I met Eric Kim. He's on the faculty there, and he sits principal for the Festival Orchestra, which is a mixture of faculty and students. And even though I didn't sit next to him, I sat behind him, which in a way was maybe even more educational than it would have been if I had sat next to him, because I got to see what it was like 
to sit in a section and have such an impressive leader up front and see that perspective from someone in the section. Like, what does it really mean to lead a section well? And the way that he spoke and played and just led in all those aspects that just further cemented in my brain, like, man, I want to do that. I want to do that as well as I can. So my second summer there, I ended up studying with him for that summer. And then a couple of years after that, I ended up doing my master's with him. Oh, at Indiana, right? That's right. And then from there, I went to Curtis, where I studied with both Peter Wiley and Carter Bray. And Peter Wiley is these days maybe primarily a chamber musician. But years ago, he was also, um, he had a pretty illustrious orchestral career as well, also as a principal. And Carter Bray, obviously, is the principal cellist of the New York Philharmonic. And I learned a ton from him as well, even though it was one year and it was pretty fast paced. But we also worked really hard on the repertoire and, and preparing for actually doing in real life what I wanted to do. There's been, there have been so many figures. I have a funny story about Carter Bray, at least from my experience, which is around the same time that you had won both of those positions in Utah and in Pittsburgh. I think you had already made the decision, but I happened to be subbing with the New York Phil at the time. And so I went up to Carter and asked him, I think you had turned down Pittsburgh. And I said, how come your students keep winning and turning down the Pittsburgh Symphony? And he talked to me about you. And what he said was really interesting. He, I said, how did you know that this guy was going to be able to land two big jobs like this? And he said, when Rainer came and played for me and told me that he wanted to be principal in a big orchestra, I got very excited because he had all the tools. He knew how to play the cello and he was already so skilled at the cello that it was just a matter of honing those skills into the repertoire. So it was a great experience is how he described teaching you and helping you achieve those goals. Well, that's nice of him to say. <laughs> yeah. And, and I will say I've had the same experience myself sitting behind him as principal. He's a fantastic leader mm. and he leads with such humility, not arrogance or ego. Like he's the best. He leads as we are a section and trying to do this together as one, the best possible level that we can all achieve collectively. Right. And I love that style of leadership. And I, I would say, I think you embody the same leadership in my experience so far. I hope so. Thanks. So when did you discover you wanted to do this professionally? Professionally? Well, it's that's also sort of tough to answer because it's something that I've done for so long. And at a certain point, it just sort of felt predestined, predetermined. Although I, I even had times during my undergrad, for example, where I was really feeling just kind of burnt out, sometimes disillusioned, just not a little aimless. And I, I, there were times where I seriously considered doing something else, but those times never really lasted very long. And I always felt drawn back to music and to the cello. But by the time I was towards the end of my undergrad, I was laser focused on orchestra auditions and trying to win a job and trying to get my foot in the door. And all of my later grad school studies and summer stuff, everything was, it was all about trying to become a professional. Did you find that all the people around you shared that same interest? in the time that you were feeling that way? Not as much as, as you might expect, especially at Curtis. The level of string playing is just insanely high. The school orchestra at Curtis is still like one of the best orchestras I've ever been a part of. But the focus there is not as much on ending up in an orchestral career, at least among the string players, I would say. There are a lot more people doing international competitions and doing the chamber music thing. And, and yeah, I mean, there are, there are cellists I can think of too, who were in my studio at Curtis that now have major orchestra jobs as well. So it's not like I was the only one, but it's not everyone at that level at all three schools that I attended. Not everyone specifically wants to play in an orchestra or be a principal because there's so many different things you can do with the instrument. Yeah. 
I think it is a little rare, especially in your undergraduate years, to already be focusing on orchestral career. There's so much focus on chamber music and playing the cello and being the best you can at developing your voice. Mm -hmm. And then what you choose to do with that sometimes seems to come later after you've been trained to play the instrument the best way that, that you can. Right. So who put the cello in your hands the first time? That would be my mom. So my mom is a musician. She's a professional clarinetist, and she grew up in the Texas public school band music programs and always wished that she could have been a string player, but that wasn't really an option for her at the time. So when I came along, that was sort of determined that, that I was going to play a string instrument. She loved the cello, and we had the Yo-Yo Ma CDs in the car from basically as, as early as I was even aware of what was going on around me. I remember I have these memories of even before I had ever held an instrument, like walking around the house and sort of air bowing and asking like when I was going to get to start. So either I was really into it or she was really um, crafty at planting that idea in my brain. Yeah, when I was six years old, I started playing. We started out with Suzuki. I did that for about a year or so, actually. It was important to my mom that I start learning to read music sooner than what was intended through the program. So we ended up changing course. But I, I do credit Suzuki, even though it was just a year with having a really good foundation and developing a strong ear and those things. So when you did Suzuki, did she also learn the instrument with you and work with you at home every day? She Well, she practiced with me all the time, but she didn't actually also like learn to play as I was learning to play, as far as I can remember. My mom, I mean... I'm biased, but she's an excellent teacher. And in a lot of ways, she was my first teacher. I mean, if she'd be like in, in her room getting ready for a, a performance or something, and and I would be in the room practicing, I have these memories of metronome, do it again, <laughs> do it again. Nope. 10 times in a row, do it slow. Now bump the metronome, two clicks, metronome, pitch. I was being practiced with. Yeah from a really early age. It's interesting too, because in talking to Steven Isserlis in our inaugural episode, he also started at six and I started mm. at six and you started at six. Right. I'm just wondering if there's something to that now. I mean, if you start after six, does that mean you won't be successful? Or do you think, what influence does it have that we started at six? Why do you think that this is a common thread? I don't know how, how vital six as an age specifically is, but I, I do think with any skill, especially a, a physical skill based on repetitive practicing and developing those pathways in your brain, I think the sooner you start within reason, the better. I know people that started later. I mean, my wife is also a very fine cellist and she started in her teens. Wow. And actually, I'm pretty sure Carter Bray started in his teens. I'd have to look that up. Yeah, I'm not sure. But I think he was also a late starter. So there are obviously exceptions to the rule. I definitely feel that there's a benefit. Just even the exposure alone, just hearing music from a young age. And I mean, I can't play piano at all, but we had one and I would mess around. And the sense of pitch and things like being able to sight read well, like those kinds of things just develop from starting sooner. Yeah. I mean, both of my parents are pianists, so they started me on piano at five. But honestly, from the stories they tell me, I would have been dying to start the cello at two as soon as they could put it in my hands. Because I was, again, exposed to it. My mother played in a duo with a cellist who ended up being my first teacher, Myron Lutsky, who's a cellist in New York. I was just so taken by the instrument. And I do remember being drawn to it. But being drawn to it at six and having your parents put that in your hand at six, how did that translate as you got later in school into middle school and high school? Were you determined to practice or was that something that you were forced to do for a while until you caught on? I think I was always 
pretty good about practicing, but I never practiced a lot as a kid. I feel like my goal kind of through my whole life has been, for whatever reason, to practice as efficiently and in a way as little <laughs> as as possible to achieve the goal. I mean, if you're if you're having to practice just a lot all the time, maybe there's something that can be streamlined a bit. I think efficiency. So when you say a lot or not a lot, give us an idea of that, like middle school, high school, college, what sort of hours you were putting in back then? In my undergraduate, I mean, a four hour day would have been taxing. Yeah. It would have been a lot. I definitely did more of that. But in high school, I mean, two, three hours a day would be a heavy day. And maybe, maybe who knows, maybe if I, if I could go back and I practiced way more, I'd be even further along or something. But I, I always feel like I practiced as much as I needed to achieve my goals. And I mean, there were things I, I didn't get that I wish I had certain things I failed at that were disappointing and maybe things would be different if I had practiced more. So I'm not necessarily endorsing practicing less for anyone listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I've, I've never been like a dawn to dusk, locked in the practice room kind of cellist. That's just not, I don't have the patience for that. Yeah. And I do think that there's a point where you reach diminishing returns. Right. I had a different path, obviously, in getting an orchestra job of taking multiple auditions one after the other and really getting into that rhythm. And I would say even through all of those times, I was practicing somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five hours a day. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I could physically do more than five hours a day. Right. I will say when I'm, when I'm preparing for an audition, that's when I practice the most. Yeah. That's probably when most of us practice the most. <laughs> right. Because there's just so much material that you have to cover and have ready at a moment's notice that the only way to really be truly well prepared. Then I'll put in a five, six hour day pretty regularly when I have an orchestra on the orchestra audition on the horizon. Yeah. And I, I've noticed that too, with some of my students that they'll study through high school, practicing two to three hours a day, I think is the average for a serious high school student. And then they get to conservatory or music school. And then they're doing that kind of practicing, maybe more. Plus they're playing in ensembles every day and many other things outside of just the practicing. So all of a sudden they have to deal with playing so many more hours than they are generally accustomed to. And then you're looking at being careful about facing injury. So there is a limit that we have to place on our bodies and be smart about it. And we will talk more in future episodes about the healthy musician and doing things to maintain health because all of that is really important. We're going to pause for a short break. To all of you other cello Sherpas out there nurturing future generations of cellists or any other instrument, we have a new feature just for you. Many of the topics we will cover here on the Cello Sherpa podcast are worthy of further discussion, so we wanted to let you know about teaching points we will be posting on our website after each podcast. We develop these materials with you and your students in mind. Feel free to copy them, hand them out, and use them as assignments to be completed after listening to our podcast, or just tools for raising the level of professionalism in your studio classes, rep classes, orchestra, or band programs. Please visit our website for more information and click on the Teaching Points tab. And as always, give us some feedback on what you'd like to learn more about on the Cello Sherpa podcast. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever platform you get your podcast from. This helps our rankings and makes it easier for others to find us. 
I wanted to talk a little bit about in our previous two episodes, we talked with David Gaber and Felix Wong about the differences between attending a conservatory or a university program. And you basically went the university route until you got to Curtis. What led to that decision? And did you consider conservatory versus university at the time? I definitely considered both. For my undergrad, after I took my auditions, it really boiled down to either going to Michigan or to Eastman, which I guess is technically part of a university, but it seems to function as a conservatory. Yeah. But really, all the decisions I made about where I went had to do with the teacher. I was following a teacher. For undergrad, I mean, if Richard Aaron had been somewhere else, I I would have applied there. And if I had gotten in, I probably would have gone. The experience is different. I mean, being at a Big Ten, massive 40,000 student campus compared to being at Curtis where you have enough people for one orchestra and some pianists and vocalists. I mean, it's it's a different vibe for sure. Right. Did you go to big sporting events when you were at University of Michigan? You know, I never, I never went to a football game. <laughs> Wow. So you're making us cellists look bad. Then. Yeah. I mean, and it's, yeah, I'm sort of a, a contradiction. I mean, I like grew up in Texas and went to a big 10 school and like, I don't, I have no interest in football. So being at Michigan, that, that had no effect on my existence really. So then in high school, were you more focused on academics or even at that point, was it all cello as much as possible? I was pretty academically focused. There was a time when I was in the international baccalaureate program, the IB program, in high school. I ended up not finishing in that program. It just turned out to be too much for me at that time in my life to be really serious about the cello and also be taking college level classes. Yeah, that's a really tough balance. It is. And I took academics very seriously and I was interested in different topics, but my main focus was music. And even if I wasn't spending, you know, however many hours a day practicing, I was still very involved. I think at one point in high school, I was in three youth orchestras at the same time. Oh, wow. And I had a string quartet and I had this group of friends from these youth orchestras that were just all hyper-focused and that was what we did. Outside of music, you probably didn't have time for much else in high school. Well, freshman year, I I was on the track team. I did that. But for the most part, yeah, I, I was sort of focused on this one big part of my life. Can you tell us about the wonderful cello that you get to play on every day? So this cello, it's sort of a mystery. It's at this point, we think it's Italian probably mid 18th century. My nickname for it is Brownie. Everyone in my family just refers to it as Brownie. It's beautiful, but we don't know who made it. There's a label in it that seems maybe suspicious, but it's probably from Venice or somewhere around there. And it's, yeah, for all the mystery, I mean, it it sounds, it sounds fantastic. And it came to me when I was doing my master's degree. And I think a big part of the really steep growth that I had as a player from then until now has been a result of having an instrument like that, that would just keep getting better with me. So I'm fortunate to have it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people maybe don't realize until they start instrument shopping that the price tag on an instrument has nothing to do with how the instrument actually sounds. Right. And has everything to do with what's the name of it, what papers are on it, what condition is it in? It's more like a piece of art that's valued first. And it could be the worst sounding half a million dollar piece of art or the best sounding $25,000 piece of art. It just Right. It's all subjective. Nobody's deciding what the overarching theme is and whether something's good or bad because it's all relative. Right. I would probably say that probably the best sounding cellos that there are out there probably also happen to be the prohibitively expensive ones. But there are plenty of prohibitively expensive cellos that aren't actually all that great sounding. Yeah. There's correlation, but it's not a hard rule, I would say. 
Yeah, certainly the Stradivarius became the name the Stradivarius for a reason outside of right. just how they were made. They happen to also sound great the majority of the time. Right. So what do you do in your downtime to get a break from music? Well, now that we're here and, and we've settled into a house and we have our place, I mean, we love to just sort of get outside. And especially right now, this time of year, I've learned in my short time here, this is that sweet spot between when it's a little too cold and when it's kind of humid and you don't really want to go outside. So, you know, we like to bike to the park and have a picnic or there's a nature preserve near our house. We like to get in there with the dogs and just sit outside and just, I mean, these days with the pandemic, it's not like we can explore the restaurant scene very comfortably, or there's a lot that we had just started to do when we moved here that now is sort of off limits, hopefully not for much longer. I'm sort of a homebody in a lot of ways. You know, I, I like to read and play chess and spend time with the people and animals that are close to me. And what kind of dogs do you have? Two big dogs? We have two really big dogs. So one, Cooper is a yellow lab. He's not so big. He's about 75 to 80 pounds, depending on the month. Uh (laughs) And then Margot is a a mix of a St. Bernard and a Great Pyrenees, and she's about 120 pounds. Wow, that's a big dog. And we got them both in Salt Lake City and moved them down south. Yeah, how have they adjusted to the temperature difference between Salt Lake City and... (laughs) Uh, Cooper's fine. I mean, labs, labs can live anywhere. It's, it's tough for Margo because she's really a, a snow breed. Yeah. In Salt Lake city, she would just refuse to come in in the middle of a blizzard and just, I mean, she would sleep outside if you let her. So in the summer, she, she's really a full-time indoor dog basically, because it's just, she's not built for this. Over the last year during this challenging time of the pandemic, obviously you've had more time with, with your wife and with the dogs and more time at home. I think all of us have discovered what it's like to be home more. How have you stayed motivated? Because I do think that that's challenging for a lot of us to really stay motivated when we're not working a regular schedule or regular classes and doing online school and all of the other things people are challenged with right now. It definitely is a challenge. And I'm personally very sort of project driven. I'm not someone who will just for no reason sit in and practice for three, four hours a day, just out of principle. I wish I was. Yeah, I can relate to that too. (laughs) Yeah, there are people like that. We have many colleagues like that, actually. <laughs> right. I've been fortunate that even even during this time, I've had certain big concerts that have come up that have given me something to really practice for and strive for. The one discipline that I've tried to maintain is that even if I can tell it's just not going to happen today, I still force myself to do my technique regimen, go through my scales and my octaves, arpeggios, all my intervals, everything. I try to make myself do, even if it's just 30 minutes to an hour, just to not backtrack, not to lose ground in the never-ending battle to sound good. Is this a method that you developed after working with Richard Aaron? Yeah, it's it's sort of my own tailored version of what he teaches. I remember there was a, a studio class in my freshman year where it was just him and, and the freshman of, of the studio that year. And he sat down and he had this book that he had put together. And we we all went through all these exercises and all these scales and everything. And And he would say, you know, do this for a few minutes and do this for a few minutes and do this for a few minutes. And I remember just being kind of shocked because if you actually add all that up, it's like hours and hours yeah. <laughs> a day of doing that stuff. And it's all great stuff, but there's only so much time in a day. So I've, over the years, boiled down what I found was really effective for just keeping me feeling like I'm strong and in shape and I make sure to do those things. And every once in a while you change it up because you can kind of soften in other areas if you're not keeping them sharp. Yeah, that's great. Is there any other advice you'd like to offer to our audience that we haven't covered? One thing that I've I've really learned from taking auditions, and Joel, I mean, you, you mentioned the auditions that I've won, but there are plenty that I have not won. 
But having taken a good number of auditions so far, I find that what really works best for me, aside from just actual playing of the cello, is visualization and really practicing putting yourself in the situation, whether it's a performance or an audition or whatever it is, trying to mentally put yourself into that feeling, that stressful feeling of what it's actually going to be like to play. Because no matter how much you practice, how much time you put in, you can't really practice dealing with the atmosphere that's going to be surrounding you in the moment. Would you say then that that means visualizing sitting on stage in a hall with a screen in front of you? Or do you visualize with the committee out in the hall and and sort of get yourself with your mind wrapped around that first? Even more than that specific, it's just I'll sort of imagine if it's a hall that I've never been in, for example, or if it's an orchestra that I haven't auditioned for and I don't know what their procedure is going to be with screens or whatnot. It's usually just when you're practicing, there's there's always that crutch of, oh, I can do it again if I mess up or I can tweak this. It's that feeling of, you know, and whether it's it's a concerto performance or an audition, it sort of applies across the board. It's just you have to convince yourself that what if this is the only chance? What if this is the one shot? This is the performance and you there are no take backs or do overs and you see how you do under those conditions. And that's something that for me has been really important in my development and in in my success rate. The more I do that, the better I cope in the moment. And I mean, I've gotten to the point now where I can I can sit down and make my hands sweaty in like two seconds, just thinking about what it's going to be like on the day. I mean, it's it's a skill like anything else that you have to develop, but it's really been helpful for me. That's great. I'm sure people will find that to be very useful. So where can people find you on social media? I'm generally social media averse um, <laughs> for a number of reasons, but I do have a website, rainerydicus.com, that just has some information and links and things to performances. I do have a YouTube channel also where I've been uploading things for years of various genres and types. So YouTube is sort of my one social media home, I would say. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Thank you, Joel. Had a great time. Thank you so much for listening to our fourth episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. Be sure and catch our next episode where we interview Jennifer Humphreys, cellist in the St. Louis Symphony, about how to prepare for an orchestra audition. We're here to serve you, so if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like us to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com, or tweet them at us, at thecellosherpa. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Be sure and subscribe to the Cello Sherpa podcast so you'll be notified when our next episode posts. Today's episode was produced, recorded, and mostly edited by Joel Dallow with some much-needed assistance from Mark DeClaudio at 3Wire Creative. You can find more information about them at 3, and that's the number 3, wirecreative.com.